You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall in New York City. And me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. How are you, John? I'm okay, Charles. I'm okay. How are you? Doing very well, thanks. And uh, I believe we are going to take a little bit of a hiatus. Both of us will be traveling over the summer and we will be taking a bit of a break until the end of August. Is that right? That's what I hope. Yeah, hopefully we'll both be back in one piece, unscarred at the end of August to continue. But yeah, we've been going nonstop for a year. So I think we've, we're okay to take a break. I think so. I think so. And we have been putting together a really great list of people to interview for the podcast, including people obviously from the mammal watching world, but also from um, the conservation world, zoo world, museum world, and even the birding, birding world. world. Da, da, da. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what's next? Um, yeah, it's very exciting. We have, it's one of the things, isn't it? We haven't, we have not run out of people to talk to and the list keeps getting longer. Uh, there are so many great people out there. So um, I'm looking forward to returning with you, Charles. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to point out again to our listeners that if there is anyone that you think that we really should uh, be interviewing for this or a topic that you think we should cover, please do get in touch and let us know. Yeah. And you can write to us at mammalwatching, one word, mammalwatching at gmail.com. But right now we have our last guest for season one, Dr. Merlin Tuttle from his home in Austin. If you are interested in bats, if you know anything about bats, if you've ever Googled a picture of a bat, then the chances are you've come across Merlin Tuttle's name. He founded Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation in 2014, where he's still active. Um, he's in his, he's just turned 80 and he's been studying bats for 60 years. He's been working to conserve them for 40 years. He's still going strong. Um, and he's, he is just a passionate bas, bat ambassador. Uh, doing everything he can to increase understanding of this little known group of mammals. Um, Merlin, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real thrill to have you on the podcast. Thank you, John. I'm looking forward very much to speaking with you and Charles. Yeah, thanks, Merlin. It's a real pleasure to have you here. So Merlin, can you tell us a bit more about, about yourself and your story? <laughs> I'm not sure where to start there. It's a long one, but <laughs> let me point out that I was born in Hawaii and uh, loved nature from the day I was able to first walk. By the time I was less than two years old, I could tell my parents when a monarch caterpillar, when a pupa was about to hatch into a monarch. By the time I was five, I knew most of the scientific names of the seashells of, the, of Hawaii because my dad was really a big time shell collector. And uh, then it just went on from there. Uh, by the time I was five, I was terrorizing my poor mother, dragging big snakes into the house. I remember bringing a four-foot king snake into the house one day, and she was actually quite frightened of snakes, but didn't want to put that on me. So uh, I was desperately wanting to keep this snake at least long enough to show my father when he came home. So she let me put it in a cage, forgot about it. And that night when she was walking through the house, turning off lights barefoot, she stepped on the snake that got out of my cage. There are quite a few really interesting stories of snake escapes in the house. But in, in fact, but when I was in high school, I think I had all the species of poisonous snakes of the eastern U.S. in my room. And it may surprise a lot of people to know that the first two scientific papers I published were actually about shrews, not bats. And... Uh, but by the time I, when I was nine years old, a scientist, a mammologist came to my school and spoke to my class. And I'll never forget thinking, wow, you mean mammologists actually get paid to go have fun and adventure in the jungle? That's what I'm gonna do. So that was when I decided to be a mammologist. Then I really didn't, hone in on bats too much until I was in high school and lived near a bat cave. And uh, then I found that the bats were doing something that all the books said they didn't do. They were, they were said to be non-migratory living in one cave year round. And uh, my bats were uh, 
showing up only in the spring and fall, which led me to think they must be migrating. So I got my mother to drive me to the Smithsonian and where I didn't even have an appointment, but I, we just went to the front desk and said, I had some specimens I wanted to talk to whoever the mammologist was about them. And I had a couple of study skins prepared so that they would know for sure what I was talking about. I'd taken this pretty serious by that time. And uh, so I had field notes showing that the bats only came and went in the spring and fall. And uh, I was just a teenager then, and uh, they were apparently reasonably impressed because they gave me several thousand bat bands and said, why don't you go band some of these bats and see where they go? I got incredibly lucky and actually found a lot of my banded bats more than 100 miles north, just like two months after I banded them and they were hibernating. So what was really credible, I expected that the bats were migrating all right, but I thought they'd be going south for the winter and these are actually going north. I, and uh, so when you start out like that, making a discovery that all the books say is, you know, isn't so, uh, that can get you pretty excited. And that led to me eventually banding almost 42,000 of those bats and tracing them for 20 years. Wow. What state was that again? I was living near Knoxville, Tennessee at that time. And which species was that? That was the gray bat. At that oh, right. point, yeah. at, at that point, the gray bat was declining so rapidly that Barbara and Davis, who wrote Bats of America, uh, predicted that it would soon become extinct. But through my research and subsequent conservation efforts, we now have millions more than when the species extinction was predicted. Oh, wow. I didn't know. And what was the, what, what was the cause of the decline back then? Same thing we face big time now. People scaring bats needlessly claiming they've got a whole lot more disease problems than is reality. Mm. Uh, at that point, almost, see, back in the late 60s through the 70s, early 80s, almost everybody in America thought that most, if not all, bats were rabid. They'd been warned that bats were rabid, would attack. Uh, you even today hear claims of bats sneaking up and biting people when they're asleep and not knowing about it. Uh, I'm probably the world's foremost authority on bat bites. I've been bitten enough times, but you know, I'm always, when I get bitten by a bat, it's always because I'm handling him carelessly, uh, doing research or photography. And, you know, I accept my bites. I, they're deserved usually, you know, I've never been bitten undeserved by a bat. <laughs> and, and, uh, but it's interesting in my 60 some years of studying bats and having had all that contact with bats, I have never contracted any of these so-called emerging diseases that are said to be so dangerous. Hmm. We, as, as bat biologists, we are all vaccinated against rabies because like veterinarians, we handle unfamiliar animals and occasionally we get bitten in self-defense. And if that happens, we wanna be protected. The rabies vaccine is very safe and effective. So we do take that precaution. So you're, um... You made this amazing discovery when you were still, what, a high school? Um, and then you, you went on to, to do a degree in zoology and a PhD, is that right? Yes, I obtained a PhD in bat biology, mostly mm -hmm. stu studying the behavior of the gray bat. And uh, I eventually traced them over thousands of square miles, uh, a couple hundred locations, uh, back before we had... Uh, computer chips to track bats better than we can today. I figured out that there were bats that I captured and banded together at one point. And then over the next period of 10 to 15 years, I would still catch the same bats together, sometimes 200 miles from where I first caught them. Mm. And so it was pretty obvious to me that these bats formed, you know, call me anthropomorphic if you wish, but some kind of friendship uh, association. But uh, now 
more recent discoveries with more with better technological assistance, it's been known for the last several years that bats form so have social order uh, strikingly similar to that of higher primates. They form long-term relationships. They help each other in need. They uh, even some of them adopt orphans. Wow, I didn't know that. That's um, they are extraordinary, aren't they? And is that um, across um, all species that have been studied or are some types of bats more predisposed to this higher level of sociality than others? Or is that not known? I used to think that the carnivores and the bigger maybe flying foxes were the smart ones. And at first I wouldn't even try it. You know, I train bats and at first I wouldn't even try to train the little tiny ones. But then I remember one time I was out in the southwestern U.S. and I was training pallid bats for a filming we were going to shoot, showing them. I needed them trained so that when we were shooting high-speed film of catching scorpions, for example, we knew where the bat was going to go catch the scorpion, when it was going to do it, because we had to, back then it took two seconds to rev up to 400 speed and you're spending a lot of film doing that. So we need to know exactly when and where the bat was going to capture prey. And I could put a scorpion in a set on a table and know the bat wouldn't come to catch him until I called him. And so I trained this pallet bat to, to come on call. And one night he got full and didn't want to come anymore. And I had a little Western pipistrelle bat that only weighs about four grams. That's, that's less than a U.S. nickel had this tiny bat that was in there just flying free and I was going to later take a portrait of him or something, but I wasn't going to try a train because I knew these little bats couldn't, you know, probably weren't smart enough. And when the pallet bat didn't come for his reward, the little Western pipistrelle that hadn't even been consciously trained came and got it for him. No. <laughs> wow. And I've had even more striking experience since. Uh, my wife and I are working in, in uh, oh, Sarawak several years ago on uh, bats that live in pitcher plants. Hmm. And these pitcher plants are out in swamps where there's just no way to sit up and do my kind of photography, especially when it's raining unpredictably about every other hour. And so I caught one. And again, these are tiny bats that just weighed four grams or less and um, brought one into into i carry a a studio made out of mosquito net sides that i can set up almost anywhere and and photograph bats looking like they're out in natural situations in that studio and so i brought this bat in we we're quite concerned about taking really good care of him because you know a tiny bat like that can quickly starve on you if you're not treating him right so when I first got him, brought him in, I fed him mealworms, holding him in one hand and then handing mealworms with the other. I fed him enough to know he'd be okay until morning. And then the next day when my wife and I came back into the studio, the bat immediately came to me, didn't come to my wife who hadn't fed him the night before, came to me and started flying up and bumping me in the face. And I wouldn't even tell this story if it wasn't for the fact that my wife quickly picked up a camera and got a video, which is on my website, showing the bat coming up and it just kept at it. It would keep bumping me in the face until I finally held a mealworm out in my hand and then it flew right to the hand and got the mealworm. So here's this bat that, you know, I'm thinking he's not smart enough to be trained and he's ended up trying to train me to feed him on command. <laughs> wow isn't that amazing and i've even trained bats in the wild that i never handled or you know captured really what 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 did you do with them well i don't know if you remember dieter plaga he was one of the finest wildlife cinematographers of all time yeah mm -hmm. he and i were filming we wanted to shoot epaulette bats courting and we uh these bats are very sensitive. You know, I presume they got a good reason. There are enough people that eat bats and kill them for various reasons. So the bats would guard street lights as courting sites. 
to show their expanded epaulets and sing to attract females. And, but they're very shy. And if you start to approach one with a light or anything, they'd fly away. So we looked around until we found a street light in a movie park, movie theater parking lot. And uh, figured they'd be a little more used to people being around there. And they were. We found one, we, and I watched him for an evening to see where he liked to perch to court. And then the next evening, we came back with a long bamboo pole. And we had picked out one site that was most photogenic. And uh, so I took this bamboo pole, and I just move it very slightly, just close enough to him to make him nervous so he'd leave the side he was courting on if it wasn't the one we wanted him to be filmed on. And uh, so we did this, I don't remember how long, but I don't think more than a, an hour or two. And so he learned that I'd quit harassing him if he went to this other site. Next night we came back to film he recognized us the moment we pulled up and he wasn't at the right side, but as soon as he saw us pull up, he went over to where we wanted him. <laughs> so Merlin, you were you had um, a mammalogist dream job. You were the curator of mammals at the Milwaukee Natural History Museum, and yet you left that to, to work on bat conservation. Why? Uh, what happened was, I did get to go wherever I wanted and study as long as I wanted. But as I was doing this, I was seeing how critically important bats are to controlling insect pests of crops, pollinating things like the baobab in Africa, the most famous tree is heavily relying on bats to pollinate it. The Oroko, one of the most important timber trees of Africa, again, very dependent upon bats. Uh, Go to Indonesia and you've got one study not long ago showed that uh, bats are worth almost $800 million a year in savings to cacao growers from insect pest control. I got to seeing all these values and then at the same time seeing the very people that were benefiting from them burning bat caves and killing sometimes a million bats in one fell swoop. And I just couldn't not speak out. And I thought that as soon as people like me documented that bats were really important and in big need of help, that the existing traditional organizations would come to their aid. But nobody really wanted to do anything that wasn't popular. And so they, if somebody called one of the existing organizations about a bat problem, they sent them to me. And so I finally hired a secretary to help answer questions. And because I didn't want to give up my research, I love doing full-time research. And uh, so I hired, raised 500, $5,000 back then it cost me for a year's salary for a secretary to, to help. But almost overnight, it took off and I had people like Bill Walker, who was the president of Bacardi and Gordon Sears, who is the chair of the board of the biggest PR firm in America, offering their help. And all of a sudden I had to just take things a whole lot more serious. And when we started making real progress, I still wanted to do research, but I just couldn't any longer say my research fund is more important than doing what nobody else is yet doing for conservation. And uh, so that's how I've spent my subsequent life. And I don't regret it at all. Um, it's, it's very rewarding knowing that you're making a difference for something that wouldn't have happened without you. And, you know, in, in bats, despite all the misunderstanding, uh, they're absolutely essential, both ecologically and economically. And, one of the things that has made my work successful is that wherever I go, the first thing I do is point out how people will benefit if they take care of the bats. So, Merlin, you, 
you're a photographer, you're an educator, conservationist, a bat ambassador, as well as a researcher. And over the years, you've done a great deal to correct the misperceptions that many of the many of the public has about bats. What approaches have you found have proven the most successful? Well, when I when I first got into bat conservation here in the United States back in early 1980s, virtually everybody just knew that bats were rabid and they would attack you. And every, all a bat had to do was go after a mosquito flying near you and, and you, you know, a person sees a bat coming after a mosquito. And if he's been programmed to think bats are mostly rabid and will attack, he flees in terror thinking the bat's attacking. And I even had cases where, you know, one guy was absolutely positive he'd been attacked. He said, yeah, look at my arm where the bat got me. And there are these big scratch marks down his arm. And, but I'm aware that there's no bat in the area that could have even done that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I found instead of arguing with people and denying what they thought was their obvious visual documentation, I would just ask them questions. So I said, well, how close was the bat when you started running? Uh, well, you know, maybe 10 feet. Uh, tell me, are you sure that bat wasn't just after a mosquito buzzing around your head? And then I'd say, and you know, I've been bitten by bats and I, I've never seen anything like those scratch marks on your arm. Uh, is there any possibility that something else happened there? Oh, well, I did run by the rose bushes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so when people would come up with ridiculous claims against bats, uh, I would just ask some questions and, and be very interested. You know, look, I'm a bat biologist. And I've never had anything like this ever happen to me. I've never seen anybody who did. I'd really want to document this if this really, you know, happened. Can you tell me about it? And, you know, as long as you respect people and listen to them, you've won two thirds of the friendship. You know, I, I often say I'd rather win friends than battles. And my whole, when I started, so many people were afraid of bats and hated bats that the leading, you know, there was a poll done about the time I got into bat conservation and it, revealed that um, bats rank right between rattlesnakes and cockroaches in popularity. Mm. So in those days, everybody could have been considered just about an enemy of bats and what I wanted to do. And you got two choices. You can go out and try to fight what's wrong, or you can try to win the quotes perceived enemy into friends. And what I found is if I won enough friends, I didn't need to win the battles. And so I became as, probably as much of a specialist in winning friends as you've ever met, because that was the best way to uh, get where I needed to go to change attitudes about bats. I, ha I had a case one time where the Tennessee Valley Authority urgently asked me to fly to Alabama to uh, investigate a bat mauling. A guy had you know, claimed to be actually mauled by a bat. And nobody would go back to work in the dam and they had to shut down sections and they were really desperate. And I told them that there's no such thing as a bat mauling, but they said, nobody's gonna believe it if you don't show up and investigate. So they flew me down and I looked at this guy's arm and he hardly, good Lord, it looked like somebody taking a saw blade and just pushed it down on his skin and raked the whole length. I mean, it was really bad. And this is his proof that he was mauled. And uh, so just the fact that I even asked questions made him angry and he almost had to be restrained that he, you know, he was gonna beat me up for questioning him. But I finally found a couple individuals brave enough to go down into the inner dam workings to investigate the scene of the crime with me. And sure enough, Here's what happened. A bat had gone in and sought refuge inside his locker. When he opened it, the bat was frightened, tried to come out, scared him, 
and he yanks his arm out, but the top of the locker wasn't well finished and it cut him like saw blades. Hmm. And you can still see his skin on the, on the top of the locker. Well, when we went back with the evidence, the funny thing was he was about to, he was about ready to go strangle his doctor for being so stupid as to believe he got mauled by a bat. <laughs> and do you see, has there been a change in public attitudes? Has any sort of positive uh, change towards bats or is it a, still a real struggle? We've made a hell of a lot of progress, but it's still a, a struggle because, you know, back when I first got started, it was just about rabies mostly. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, you could find newspaper headlines from coast to coast in the U.S. reporting all kinds of claimed bad attacks. But uh, when we got down to really researching the risk from bats, it turns out that there's only one to two humans a year in out of 300 million in all the U.S. and Canada combined that contract rabies from bat. And those are people that picked up a sick one and didn't do anything when it bit them in self-defense. So now the problem is that it's been found that it can be incredibly lucrative to scare people about so-called emerging disease. Now, these calling them emerging makes it sound like they're new and really important, but they've been around for millions of years and they're so rare, we're just now discovering them. And uh, so like Ebola got blamed on bats big time and still most places you read, you'll hear that Ebola came from bats, but it's all quite unproven speculation. The current evidence is that Ebola can lay latent in humans for maybe a decade or more. And uh, then when a human gets stressed, they come down with it and it looks like the index case for Ebola was a little boy who got it from his grandmother who had a case, you know, we used to call them typhoid Mary type cases uh, where she had the disease but wasn't dying of it. And because she didn't die of it, they never suspected her of having infected the boy or his family and the whole family died of Ebola. But now we know that it can lay latent in people in large primates. And uh, I don't think anybody who really knows even suspects that it's from bats anymore, but we still hear the lingering, you know, you can almost anywhere you look right now, you'll find a litany of SARS, MERS, Ebola, now COVID, Hendra, all these things supposedly came from bats and yet not a single one of those viruses has ever been isolated from a bat. And so today we have great concerns. I mean, there are countries like Indonesia where um, I was sent news media videos of people burning large numbers of flying foxes, catch them, put them in cages and throwing them alive on fire, bonfires to burn them. Uh, we're losing a lot of conservation progress through, in, through these fictitious, very exaggerated and unproven claims. But you know, when Ebola first came out, our Congress allocated $4.8 billion to find the source. And a good share of that was spent trying to prove that it came from bats. You know, one of my big complaints about uh, how virological problems have been blamed on bats is that they're, uh, they're trying to prove a bat hypo origin hypothesis instead of testing a bat origin hypothesis. And you can find a new virus anywhere you look. We can find new species on our own bodies. So 99.9% .9 of the world's viruses have not yet been described. So it's no, no problem to find a new one. And you can easily find a new one that you can say is related to a dangerous one because they're all somewhere along the line related. And we hear a lot in the media about how, you know, this newly discovered virus is 86, even 96% identical genomically to one like say SARS or MERS or Ebola or something. 
And uh, so that, that makes the case that this probably came from a bat. It doesn't. You know, you guys probably know we're 96% genomically identical to chimpanzees, but we're not having any trouble telling ourselves from chimpanzees. And so it's been very lucrative in funding more research to go out and have more fun in the jungle. Uh, and early on, some of the leading virologists of the world published a paper in Nature in which they said that biologists shouldn't be making these predictions about how they were going to be able to tell where the bad things are going to arrive from by going out and sampling in advance because they evolved so fast and they changed so fast that it's not even worthwhile to spend all that money on searching for new viruses, let alone trying to pin it on bats. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I hadn't heard that side of the story before. I know there's certainly in Africa thousands, tens of thousands of bats have been killed for, in quotes, medical research um, to, to look for nasty diseases. And no one seems yeah. to have a problem with that. You know, go into a cave and wipe out 80% of the bats over there. And they, they seem to be a disposable mammal. Yeah. And, 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 you know, here's my big point. Just look around. We've been living with bats closer than most other animals throughout our entire human history, and yet we can't come up with a single case where bats have caused a, a pandemic of disease in humans. All of us who study bats, I mean, hundreds of us, we didn't even know these emerging diseases existed a couple decades ago, and none of us have ever gotten one. We've never been protected against them. And Take a look at places like Abidjan, the capital of Ivory Coast. There's a quarter million Eidolon flying foxes uh, living in that city. And it's fairly common for these bats to live in cities because hunters can't shoot them for bushmeat if they roost in the city. I would like somebody to explain to me if these bats are the source of Ebola, why didn't Ebola start in the cities where the bats were in close association with people and spread to the country instead of coming from the country to the cities? And then an another thing that's been pointed out, it was the, the first uh, blame fell on these idle on the straw-colored flying foxes as having caused the outbreak of, of Ebola. But um, it was pointed out actually by a virologist who said, you know, if this is being spread by bats, why is it that we have different species of Ebola restricted by river drainage systems? If this is migrating bats doing this, they should spread it equally across everything. You shouldn't have these isolated species for each drainage area. If, um... If there's ever a court case involving bats, I think you'd be a fantastic expert witness or a counsel for the defense with those questions, those subtle questions to, to get to the truth. It reminds me of a TV show. Good last fall. So um, anyone who sort of is interested in bats knows that they are well, they must be the most diverse group of mammals. What are some of your favorite species, Melon? usually the ones I've worked with most recently. <laughs> uh, the ones I've had the most trouble finding and, and getting photographs of often become my favorite just because I was so excited when I finally got one. Yeah. I remember when I was trying to get a spotted bat to photograph here in North America, it's a very spectacular bat. One of the most spectacular mammals probably in the world mm -hmm. has pink translucent ears that are as long as its whole head and body. Perfect design of black white spots on a black body on the back and a snow white belly with a black collar pink translucent wings and ears it's incredible and i spent a months and months trying to get my first one of those and uh it was pretty exciting when i finally got one to photograph uh i love the yellow wing bats lavia fronds that i photographed in africa uh, but I also, 
you know, the first bat that I trained were the frog eating bats and they're truly incredible. They're, you know, by most people's standards, they'd be ugly, but, you know, you stop to think about it. Elephants by most people's standards should be the ugliest animals around. Their eyes are too small, their nose is too long and they're heavy set, uh, you know, but people love elephants because they understand them. And they love bulldogs and think bulldogs are cute oftentimes too. And, uh, but these trachops, the frog-eating bats that I studied, uh, the excitement originally was that nobody thought that there was any bat that could hear low frequency calls coming from a frog. And I discovered that these bats could identify all the frogs by their different calls and would avoid the poisonous ones and wow. home in only on the edible species. Nice. But it's now been found since I trained those I trained those early bats only because I wanted to be in the same enclosure with them while we were doing experiments and didn't want them to be afraid of me. So we would train them to come to our hand one night and then the next night we wouldn't do that and we'd let them roost in the other corner of our enclosure and put speakers in the opposite other two corners we'd sit back here and we'd change the lead wires to change so that this speaker would have an edible call this time and a poisonous call next time. And we'd see the bats switch back and forth identifying the calls. Well, it's been found since then that you can train a bat to come to your hand or train it to come to a ringtone on a phone, release it back to the wild and catch it. It hasn't been done longer than this, but the, these bats have been caught up to four years after being trained and still remember the training. Wow. And I'm guessing they remembered a lot longer than that. We just haven't caught the bats to show it. That's <laughs> smarter than most teenagers for sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Well, you know, you're talking about diversity of bats. They come from everything from little bumblebee bats that weigh the same as the U.S. penny and about two grams to giant flying foxes with close to six-foot wingspans. Uh, they come in bright colors, mm -hmm. interesting designs. Uh, one of the things that I'd still love to do is get out to some of the remote Pacific Islands. There are some incredible, cuter and cute flying foxes out there with beautiful face striping and coloration. Uh, but I, there are very few bats that I don't have. If it's a spectacular bat, I probably have a picture of one of them. I don't have anywhere near all the world's bats. I only have between three and 400 species, but I, I do cover pretty much the diversity of bats. So if you go to my website and take a look, you can, pretty much know what the range is and it's a huge range yeah i had a look at your website uh, earlier this morning and saw your spotted bat i, I saw the lavia fronds the uh, yellow winged bat and uh, also the well witchy eye wasn't it on there is that the the uh, orange and black uh one was that a well witchy eye or oh yeah yeah else? myotis myotis well witchy eye yeah that is that's a just spectacular bat yeah i want to see that one too mm. Well, one question for you, Merlin, are there any bats which are fairly diurnal or at least spend a reasonable amount of time out during the day, or is that just too dangerous to train for them? Samoan flying fox, Tromus, Tropus samoensis, is largely diurnal. It was nearly driven to extinction decades ago by commercial hunting and where they were being shipped to Guam for people to eat. But uh, one of my favorite stories is actually getting the commercial hunters to cooperate with us to establish a national park to protect the bats. And in fact, they eventually uh, themselves got a ban on hunting them. And I don't believe they've been hunted in 25 years. That's great. That's in Samoa. Yeah. That bat, it's a beautiful, beautiful bat. And it, it can afford to be mostly diurnal because you don't have things like peregrines out there to eat them. 
right. bats fall prey to hawks very quickly. You know, you get a peregrine diving down at an angle from behind you and echolocation doesn't do you much good. Mm -hmm. uh, so mostly you get diurnal activity in places where you don't have large predaceous birds in the daytime. Yeah, yeah. I'm just surprised there aren't more more birds of prey haven't evolved to feed on bats, given that they they are so abundant and uh, all around the world. But there, there seem very very few that do that. The bat hawk, pretty much being the only one. Uh, specifically evolved to feed on bats, there are only a few, but there are a whole lot of opportunists. You you mentioned that the, some of your favorite species are the ones that have been hardest to find, uh, and I completely get that as a mammal watcher. That's a Exactly. Are there species that you have made a, a big effort to find and that still have evaded you? There's one I can't even remember the name. He's not exciting at all. It's a little tiny bat that is hard to identify from related bats, except by genetics. It, it's really nothing that should really concern me, but it represents a new family. And until it came along, I had all the families. Uh, and I went to South Africa to photograph this bat, and it seems like I can bring on floods better than anybody else. I can't tell you how many times I've gone someplace in what was supposed to be the rainy, the wet, dry season and had it, but we had record floods in South Africa while I was there, and I failed to be able to get the bat. Usually mm -hmm. I get what I'm going for, but that one... I've kind of given up on it. It's not a very exciting bat. It's just one that didn't, I wanted so that I could say I had all the families. Is that Sestudo? Yes, yes. Yeah, I've seen those. I know where you can see those. If you go back to South Africa, I'll tell you the spot. They're roosting there. <laughs> the <barn. laughs> yes. Just take your kayak with you. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Um, so obviously you've spent over the years, uh, you spent a huge amount of time um, out in the field, either researching bats or looking for bats. You must have some quite fantastic stories to tell. Do you want to share some of them with the audience? I'm not sure where to start. I sure got a <laughs> lot of them. Uh, let's see. Well, I remember when I went to Thailand and I was photographing bats at Kaiyai National Park. Back then they had tigers, they're not there anymore. I, I, I hate going back to these places now and, and you know, I'll ask, well, do I need to worry about tigers? Oh no, they have many tigers for years and they think I'm gonna be happy, but I'm not happy to hear that these animals have been lost. They're part of nature and I'd rather have to worry about protecting myself. I mean, that's half the adventure, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the first night we got there, I had already permits to net and photograph bats in the park, but the park superintendent wouldn't let me go out that night because he didn't have any armed guards to go with me to protect me from the tigers yet. So I said, well, you know, I, I've been around big cats a lot. Why don't I just set some nets right here by the park headquarters and I'll be okay. And no, no, no. And finally, he didn't want to show me this because they didn't want the publicity getting out. But he finally said, let me show you what happened a couple of weeks ago. And he took me around the back side of the park headquarters and they had these great big wooden shutters on the, they closed on the windows. And there were huge tiger claw marks coming down these shutters. And a tiger had actually gone into the room, got a, one of the wardens and killed him. <sighs> And uh, so they weren't going to let me go out without armed guards. So when I finally got my armed guards, I went to a place where they had wild banana plants growing. And I wanted to photograph the fact that all of our commercial bananas today come from wild ancestors that bats pollinate. And so Serapone, my Thai assistant, and I started to go out into this area is set up to take pictures and uh, we had our armed guards but they all stopped at the roadside and said no 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 we can't we can't you can't go out there uh 
we're here to protect you from tigers, but we don't go where the king cobras are. And um, so they reported their king cobras as big around as my thigh and 16 feet long out there. And uh, so I was desperate to get my bat. So I said, okay, look, you stay here by the road. We won't go very far and you can watch. And if you see a tiger coming, you let us know. And we went out, but Serpo and I sat there that night. I convinced him that we'd be okay as long as we kept at least a four-foot section of metal bat pole in our hands and we'd fight off the cobra if it came. And every time a mouse made the slightest noise, we got our headlights on seeing if the cobra is coming. But uh, later on the same trip, I actually was climbing into a small cave where I had to get down my hands and knees and a cobra decided to come out as I was coming in. <laughs> and I had to just freeze. You know, snakes are not looking for trouble anymore than bats or anything else are looking for trouble. And as long I just froze and didn't move and made sure the snake got by me before I moved. And then, then I was a little more careful than normal about how I came back out. <laughs> <laughs> so you you must have spent hours sitting out in the the, the field at night in the bush. Have you seen any other interesting non-bat mammals come by while you're sitting there waiting for bats to come? Oh, lots. I've probably seen more mountain lions here in the United States than almost anybody because we bat people like to hang out at remote desert watering holes to net bats at night. And the pumas hang out at those because those are great places to catch a peccary or something coming to drink. They're hanging out there the same basic reason we are, except they're not looking for the bats. And I've had places all over the world where I had a site in uh, Venezuela where we would go net bats at night and the jaguars would come up and growl at us, try to scare us away because they wanted to drink and we were in the way. My, my first trip to Africa was in Zimbabwe and I'd been told where this bat that it Tadera Chapini at that time was only a couple of specimens known to science and uh, a friend of mine Brock Fenton had caught one out at the research station in Zimbabwe and he told me exactly where he caught it and this is back when I was not too long out of graduate school and I didn't have a whole lot of money to squander but I still I, I wanted this unique bat so much that I spent $10,000 of my own money to go out there and find this bat to photograph it. My first night, the game wardens were heavily armed, took me down to where Brock had uh, caught the bat. And there are these high, like probably eight feet tall, kind of reed type plants growing along the river. I'm sure, uh, Charles, you're familiar with those. And uh, from up higher up at the headquarters building, you could actually look down and see the uh, elephants in uh, Cape Buffalo down in that vegetation. Well, we went through and they kind of made plenty of noise and tried to avoid the areas with most of the big animals. Got down, set a net over the river, and I was told to kind of turn my headlight on every so often because I had to wade waist deep in the river to check the net and uh, keep your eyes out in case there's a crocodile coming. So I was supposed to look, you know, scan look for the eyes periodically. Well, I got the net set and at midnight we hadn't caught a single bat. I had to go back because I couldn't keep the guys up all night, but I couldn't sleep either. I just spent ten thousand dollars to get this picture and i wasn't going to give up easy so at two or three in the morning i finally realized that by then the moon would be saying and the bats might be more active so i got up and i didn't want to get them up so i went down this time unarmed by myself and i'm going through these reeds clanking bat poles together and singing the top of my lungs trying to clear out anything in front of me finally got down to the net and oh my god hard to believe you can freeze to death in Africa but I was chilled to the bone after an hour of staying out there in this water and then there was a very vicious bug in the water that would bite you and feel like a wasp sting those were getting me and then about the time that I was really feeling 
bad about not getting any results at all, I hear a pride of lions coming. <laughs> and fortunately, where I was, there was an overhanging bank, and I got up under there as far as I could and then just froze and was quiet. You could hear the lions right up almost over my head. And uh, so that was my first experience in Africa. Uh, they stayed until almost sunup and they finally wandered off and I was able to get out of there. But we did, I did catch the bat the next night at another location. So oh, it all worth it then. <laughs> what, what, what species was it? Uh, back then, I think they called it Chirifon. Uh, Chirifon. Now I think it's been lumped into Tadarida plicata. Not plicata. Okay. Wait. Oh, I'm getting my names fouled up. Uh, Tadarida chapini. Is that one of the ones with like a Mohican kind of tuft it's on the It's the head. one where the male can raise this big yeah. plume of long hairs to look yeah. like a peacock spreading his tail. Yeah. Right. I would I would risk being eaten by lions for that too. I think it was a, a very <laughs> smart choice. <laughs> <laughs> so Merlin, are there any other final thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience? It's been more than 40 years since I made the choice to help bats and I'm still at it. And bats still need a lot of help. Almost anybody is probably heard in recent times about how bats are supposed to be deadly carriers of all the world's most scary diseases. It's far from the truth. What isn't far from the truth is that they're absolutely essential to our well-being, and that's why I'm still working at bat conservation at 81 years of age. And uh, we still need help. Bats need lots of help. And uh, if you'd like to help bats, I'd certainly appreciate your support. Many of us would do. And what we'll do um, is we will put a link in the notes where you can find out more about Merlin Tuttle's back conservation work, get involved, support it, um, and see all the fantastic work he's been doing and has been doing for, for 60 years. Merlin, thank you so much. That was a really wonderful journey into the world of bats. I had no idea you could train bats, um, but you make it sound very easy. I struggle to train my dog, but she's not the brightest. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and for those great, great stories. And um, what a remarkable life you've lived for all you've done to save bats, because as you say, they are extraordinarily important. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories and hearing all the work that you've done. Um, and thank you for having done so much to help protect these really misunderstood and maligned group of animals. And you guys make a great team. Uh, when I get complimented for giving a good interview, I usually point out that my good interviews come from good interviewers. Oh, why, well, thank you. I thought you were gonna say it's my good looks, but um, <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd like to listen to the full episode, then visit mammalwatching.com slash podcast.